Welcome to Dementia Dialogue. In this episode, Kathy Hickman of the Brain Exchange talks with Jill Churchman about her life together with her husband, David, who is diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. You may recall a conversation that I had with Jill just over a year ago about people with lived experience participating in dementia research. At that time, we agreed that there was much more for us to discuss about Jill and David's life together. Let's join Kathy and Jill as they pick up on this conversation. So thank you so much, Jill, for taking the time to share some of your experiences with us. I'd like to just get started by asking a little bit about how you came to realize that your husband, David, had dementia. What were some of the things that, that you or maybe others noticed? So at first it um, started with me not sleeping at night, which sounds odd, but um, the bed was moving during the night and it turned out that he was having um, nocturnal night movement that was Mm -hmm. moderate to severe, enough that it was waking me up (laughs) and it wasn't waking him up. So that was, that was the very first, first symptom that came about. And um, when we went to the doctor together to tell him about this, He dismissed us pretty quickly because he said David was not upset about this or didn't come to him. It was more me complaining about it, um, which was disappointing because I think that would have sped up our diagnosis for sure. So about, I would say, a year and a half after that, his social behavior started to change. He didn't want to participate in family events. Um, Getting together with a big crowd upset him and he would be on edge which was so not David. He was really the life of the party always and very social. So for him to not wanna go to sit around a campfire with a whole bunch of people or go out to dinner, um, it almost seemed rude and confrontational, his behavior. So for our son's birthday, he just was not himself that day at all. And um, was actually taking shots at him for most of, the, most of the dinner, which was so out of character. And then probably about four months later, once again, we were at a big family gathering and my mom called me the day after and she said, I don't want to alarm you, but I think David is having absence seizures. And at that point, I had kind of just dismissed that because it became a daily thing, became the new normal. We watched him every day kind of space out for, you know, five to 15 seconds and not really think anything of it. I wasn't aware of what was going on obviously, but she being a nurse uh, realized quite quickly that there was something really going on. So when we went back to the doctor after that, then then he took us a little more seriously. So then we waited a year and a half to see an epilepsy neurologist. And then he was diagnosed with epilepsy and given medication for the seizures. Um, He was given an overnight sleep study, like a sleep deprivation study to see if that would trigger a seizure. Um, you know, we had a, a lot more testing done. And through that, he was offered to have a spinal tap done just to rule out other things. And then it became this, yeah, kind of like a guinea pig of let's try to prove what it isn't rather than what we kind of think it might be. And at that point, they threw out the term FTD as FTD. They didn't even say frontotemporal dementia. So I still had no idea that this was going to be a dementia. So often when we think about dementia, we often think about the, about memory loss and with frontal temporal dementia, that's not necessarily the first things that you're seeing. 
So uh, I'm sure that was quite a surprise for all of you. Very much. Yeah, I think that's probably the largest thing with young onset stigma is that people don't even understand the definition of dementia. There needs to be so much more education for doctors, nurses, PSWs, the general population, just what dementia is and its symptoms. Because in most cases, memory loss is on the lower end of, of the types of dementia. Maybe Alzheimer's has it a little higher, but <laughs> FTD definitely, David could pass a MOCA test so easily. So what was life like for you both when after you finally did receive the diagnosis? Um, for David, it was, you know, a death sentence. Um, for me, it was relief because it had been six years, nine specialists, endless CAT scans, PET scans, spinal taps, you name it. And to finally have a, a name of it really helped me accept it. Um, for him, I think, yeah, it was so depressing and so sad that this is, this is what, it, what the diagnosis was. We were completely blindsided by the word dementia. What were some of the things that, that David did then to be able to deal with those emotions he was experiencing after that initial diagnosis? One of the things that helped us both the most was to give back, to start getting involved in research and to realize that our story could help someone else. And that, that's made the biggest difference for both of us and for our children. To know that there is, there is some hope down the road and they are actually working towards, towards helping people with all dementias. It makes such a difference for, for you in, in terms of your journey and your experience, but also helping other people along the way and, and knowing that you're having an impact on the, the future. Um, so what would you say are some of the things that have been more challenging for you and, and David with a younger diagnosis of dementia compared to somebody who maybe is diagnosed later? Well, obviously being robbed of a good 25 years of your life is, um, <laughs> is the biggest part, but stigma, I think the whole fact that people think dementia is a normal part of aging and it isn't, um, is a big one. Dementia doesn't just happen to old people in their 80s. And for someone who's younger, they look healthy. There's absolutely no signs. It's an invisible disease. Um, people would walk up to David and say, there's nothing wrong with him. He can still talk. He can still walk. He looks healthy. And it would take, you know, visiting with him for a few hours to realize, yeah, that he's having trouble finding words and he slurs his words sometimes or uses the wrong word as inappropriate behavior doesn't understand the context of a conversation anymore. The biggest uh, hurdles, I think, is that there's not enough supports for young onset. There's all the programming and all the activities, senior centers, everything is, is directed to somebody who's over the age of 65 and older. And they have counseling supports for them. They have counseling supports for their family. There's so many different things they can do but when you're 25 years younger than everyone around the table, it is really obvious. You're at a different stage in your life. Harder um, to find some of, some of those supports. There is. And as a younger person, you don't have, well, most people don't have their insurance and a will and an end of life plan 
long-term care, you know, thoughts on that or signing on to and picking five long-term care homes at 48. That's crazy. You know, you haven't even thought of that in your lifetime yet. And there's the fact that for young onset, so many times there's so many misdiagnoses on that journey that has a huge emotional effect on the family, especially the kids. You know, you tell them something's wrong and they try to cope and be resilient and deal with that. And then, you know, six months later, you go back to them and you say again, okay, well, now they think it's this. It's really emotionally hard on them. And there isn't supports for them. There isn't counseling services. Um, anything our kids found was probably in their 20s. There was a lot of groups for grief. There's a lot of young onset grief counseling groups. So once their parent has passed away, then there is some support through that. Another big challenge, I think, with young onset is the lack of intimacy in your relationship with that person. That changes completely. You've now become their caregiver. You're no longer their partner. The rate of divorce is very high. <laughs> a lot of people give up very quickly. And because the diagnosis takes so long, they think the person is, you know, just having a midlife crisis and having this big lifestyle change when in fact they were sick. That's, mm -hmm. that's a hard, hard thing to accept. When you're retired, you're in a completely different place than when you are in your forties. You still have young kids, maybe in high school or even younger. They're facing university and college. The costs and the economic struggles that you face are huge during your 40s. And to get this diagnosis and suddenly have to change your career, give up your career even, give up all of that that you had planned, it's a really hard, hard thing to swallow. So you mentioned a bit about the importance that you and, and David both felt around giving back. And you have been quite active in trying to make a difference for others who are going through similar experiences. Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you've been doing? Sure. We um, realized pretty quickly, um, even going to the Alzheimer's Society, you know, back 10, 10 years ago when all this started, that there was not groups for young onset. It was very, very difficult where we lived in Durham region to even find someone that I could connect with that was a young onset person, um, whether it was you know, whatever type of dementia, it didn't even matter to me. I just wanted to talk to someone and have something in common with them, which was age. And that was very difficult to find. Finally did meet another uh, younger guy and his wife unfortunately was in her forties and diagnosed with FTD. And together we started something on Facebook called the Frontotemporal Dementia FTD Durham Support Group. And it was for our whole goal was it to, for it to be a positive space to focus on helping through lived experience. And now we have almost 400 members on there, which is fantastic. And we've had neurologists on, we've had caregivers on, PSWs go on, and just people ask a question and get support from everybody through lived experience. I really um, very early on started to research for myself different FTD support groups and learned about ftd.org in the US. And every year they hold an FTD conference, a one day conference. So I did go to that in Philadelphia by myself, came home and thought, wow, I need to do this in Canada. <laughs> so I did. I hosted a one day conference and had a neurologist speak, a lawyer speak, 
a speech pathologist, someone from hospice, and an advocate named Brenda Davey, who runs a company called Silent Heroes. And uh, she's a lifestyle coach for dementia. And so many of the people that attended, it wasn't even just for FTD. And a lot of people with Parkinson's and ALS and different groups come. It was a fantastic day just for people to ask questions and to be in a safe space and just really get out and talk to, talk to each other. That's really important to me. I would love to be able to host tons of conferences like that. That would, uh, yeah, just to let people know that they're not alone. So through that, I became involved with the Ontario Neurodegenerative Disease Research Initiative, and I became the co-chair of the Patient and Community Advisory Committee. And through that now, um, David has done a few other studies. There was a research study um, called the Remind Study, which was wearable sensors. They tracked you for 10 days and um, got the results back and actually shared them with the patient and the caregiver, which was fantastic. That was um, one of, a, I think, a huge breakthrough uh, to give back the information directly to the patient and directly to the care participants. So since then, they've now started another study called Hands Ontario, and that is also wearable center, sensors that you wear at home. And this report shows your activity, your sleep, and your exercise to help you make healthy lifestyle changes. And that's been um, really a neat, neat project. We just actually completed it yesterday, was our last interview. Yeah, we got to see patterns and things that we can change in our life to help David live his best life. It's great that you're, that you're taking advantage of these opportunities to be involved in and learn more and gain things that are benefiting both of you, but also be giving back to, to others and advancing that research. So I feel very passionate that Andre is listening to the voices of lived experience and together with the charities and the doctors, the specialists and research scientists, they're doing meaningful research, um, sharing the results and helping to apply that knowledge to others. So getting involved was the best decision and to tell our story is helping others by raising awareness, creating support and education. Absolutely, fighting that stigma that, that you mentioned there's so much of. You, um, you mentioned also that that David has been part of um, has been taking part in in a early onset group. Could you tell us a little bit about how that has has had an impact for him? Yeah, that's been a it was a great group. Um, so we we actually just moved to Nova Scotia. <laughs> that's one of the hardest things to give up was that group, but it's actually online once a week as well through COVID. And um, he still continues to do that. So there's a group of five guys that are on that. And he's become quite close with them all. They play games, they share music, they tell stories, they have a theme every week. And it really gives them something to look forward to and something to contribute to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so, so meaningful for as, as difficult as you mentioned it's, it is for, for care partners to be able to find others who are also going through similar experiences, caring for someone with young onset, it can be even harder sometimes for people living with dementia themselves to be able to have opportunities to connect with others who are also living with dementia. So I've seen huge impacts on people's lives of having that opportunity to connect with others in a similar experience. So glad that he has that.
Me too. You talked a bit about the impact that that stigma about dementia has and some of the the challenges of, of living with young onset dementia. What does living well with dementia and having a positive approach to it mean to you? Um, for us, it meant changing the narrative from a death sentence to how am I going to live my best life every day? Um, finding acceptance, making friends with the disease. Um, you can't change the disease and you didn't cause it. So fighting with it is a waste of time. Um, each day is a new day. We live very simple now. We exercise, we try to eat healthy, we embrace support. Um, we really work hard on trying to get David to drink enough. <laughs> Water is a huge key. <laughs> um, in dementia, uh, it's very easy to become dehydrated. And I noticed very early on, he would tell me that water's for goats. He wasn't going to drink anything. And that became a really big problem because he did become dehydrated. And that just enhances all the symptoms. Yeah, um, getting enough sleep is another huge change in our life. We are very conscious of going to bed at a certain time and getting up. It's all about routine. Guess just trying to make David as comfortable as possible and as happy as possible each day. Um, live in the moment. The like time just doesn't have the same meaning it used to. You know, we used to live in a busy world where, yeah, you know, you're worried about work and you're worried about getting to the next thing and planning the next activity and you know who was taking who where. And yeah, now time has a different meaning for sure. There's no expectations anymore. Um, when you lower your expectations on things, you are less disappointed. What advice do you have for people living with or caring for someone with young onset dementia? Um, for those living with dementia, I would say find a good doctor, find a good neurologist. That's your key to your support, especially for medication, um, which can help you so much. Find activities that you enjoy and give meaning to your day. So if that's volunteering, which I wish there was more organizations out there that would accept volunteers that have dementia because they're hardworking, they're you know, great workers, they're fun people to be around and they would love to volunteer. Um, find a hobby. And as I said, exercise every day, try to enjoy nature. And for the caregiver, the biggest thing I can suggest is to ask for help. It is the hardest thing to do, especially women. <laughs> Men, I think, have an easier time asking for help. Um, it could be as simple as asking a neighbor to walk your dog or, you know, go do a grocery pickup for you, help with your housework. You cannot do this job 24-7 and survive. You need some respite. If you can get a holiday in there anyway, somebody, a family member, or if you can afford to pay someone, get away, even if it's just for a night and rejuvenate your soul. Very important. You need yeah. that if you're, if you're going to be able to provide the, the kind of support that you want to be providing. Find a good financial advisor. That's key. Go talk to a lawyer, get your affairs in order early, and have those tough conversations early about end-of-life care and wishes. And then let it go. Once you've, once you've established that, just let it be. <laughs> um, don't neglect your own health and happiness. You should be able to still live. You've got to give yourself permission to live as a caregiver. And be able to say no without guilt. 
my other big advice to anyone is the whole sleeping issue. Um, with David moving in the bed, it became pretty obvious that I was not sleeping, but he was. And that became a disaster because I found I was crying. I was super emotional, super cranky. <laughs> uh, sleep is key to happiness. So moving into my own room was the best decision I ever made. And I did that six years ago. And honestly, to have seven or eight hours of sleep a night makes the biggest difference in our life. And you, you can become every one of the things that behaviors or things that happen with dementia, it becomes part of your new normal. And you just accept it right away and think, oh, I shouldn't change, you know, to try to, to better my life. I just want to better their life. And you forget that you need to take care of yourself too. What else do you want others to know about living with young onset dementia, Jill? Um, just that you have a choice every day to find the negatives or to find the positives. Yesterday was a hard day and it was really ugly. Start over today. Find gratitude in today. Life is really short. <laughs> when you get this kind of diagnosis, there's, there's a timeline. And don't waste it being angry. Um, I think knowledge is power. The more you can learn about the disease and the more you can learn about what's possibly going to happen in the future, the better prepared you can be. And that's once again, you can prepare yourself for the worst situation and be grateful that that isn't the situation that day and know that it's, it's only for that moment. Living with young onset is not the same living with dementia for a senior. There needs to be more support programs, activities, and just even the whole idea of long-term care needs to be more acceptable for young people to join into that. Right now, it's such a seniors-related, old-age-related term just to go into long-term care. There's so many people that would do well in long-term care rather than being at home. Their, their life and their caregiver's life quality of life would improve. I guess the, the last comment I'd like to make is just be kind to yourself that you're doing the very best job you can do. And I think we're our own worst critic always. Mm -hmm. This is true. <laughs> well, I think Jill, the approach that, that you take to your caregiving role and just your experiences of, of supporting your husband with dementia is, is really admirable. The, the fact that you see the realities of it and you're able to kind of tackle and take those on and yet that you're you have changed that narrative and are making that choice to find the positives, to be able to find ways to continue to live well despite some of those more challenging realities. So I appreciate so much you taking the time to share your experience with all of us. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I think the more uh, that I look back at it, I wish I had have spoken up sooner. I waited years. I waited until our kids were out of high school. They were very worried about the stigma of them telling people that their dad had dementia that early on and what it was going to do to them. If people were going to feel sorry for them, if, you know, that kind of thing. And now I realize that, yeah, the more I speak up and the more I tell our story, I'm helping someone else. And that's the most important thing. 
What I sense in listening to Jill is her quiet determination to help David and herself live a good life while facing the challenges of FTD, and also her determination to change the societal narrative about young onset dementia. Her advice to caregivers to be kind to yourself is said with a compassion that can only be expressed by someone walking the same journey. Thanks, Jill and Kathy. Our next English language episode will be aired on the last day of this month and is the last in our series on arts and dementia. It is an interview with Chris Wynn, a documentary filmmaker and son of a man diagnosed with dementia. Our next balado or episode for our Francophone listeners will be released on May 17th and captures a conversation with Claire, a woman diagnosed with Parkinson's. We have three more episodes in the Young Onset series that will be released over the summer. If you want to have our episodes delivered to your inbox, write to us at dementia.dialogue at lakeheadu.ca. Thanks to the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, our institutional partner, and to the Public Health Agency of Canada for its financial support. My name is David Harvey.